Hey folks, this is Charlotte Clymer. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to a brand new episode of Charlotte's Web Thoughts. This is the audio slash podcast version of the actual Charlotte's Web Thoughts on substack.com. You can go subscribe to that at charlotteclymer.substack.com. It's completely free. All you need is an email. It takes less than five seconds to subscribe, so please do because it helps me out immensely. Once again, that's charlotteclimber.substack.com. July 6th, 2022, Midnight in America, part one. For a brief period, early in my childhood, I lived in a tiny apartment with my mother, her second husband, and a pair of kids for each of them. This was the early 90s, and I vaguely remember being in kindergarten at the time. Our apartment complex was one of those highway-adjacent stacked situations that most resembles a fleshed-out Tetris L wrapped around, in retrospect, a surprisingly clean parking lot, complete with a tall, and gleaming flagpole that jutted out of a centralized island of well-manicured grass. I don't remember exactly when it started, but every morning, being the oldest kid and the only one in school, I would stand outside alone, waiting for the school bus, not far from the flagpole, and watch as this older gentleman, I believe he was the property manager, carefully unfurl an American flag fasten it to the halyard, and carefully raise it to the top, always graceful and never in a rush. At some point, one of these mornings, after being captivated a number of times by the sight of this, I began saluting the flag with my little right hand, something which I have to assume I picked up from a TV show because this was just before the internet started becoming commonplace in schools, much less runty apartments housing kids on the free lunch program. This I remember vividly. The gentleman and I never exchanged words, but the first time I did that salute on my own volition, I had never seen an adult look so pleased as that man beaming wide at me. This weirdo kid who didn't know what I was doing when I made that gesture every morning. He loved it. He got a huge kick out of it. To at least one naive six-year-old's eyes, the American flag was absolutely gorgeous, albeit full of context and complexity, which I would only learn much later. It also strangely gave me a feeling that I couldn't quite place at the time, and which I only understood later to be a sense of belonging and security. My parents were a god-awful mess. Home life was definitely bad on many levels, and this little morning ritual became something of a small celebration. School was a safe place with structure and empathy and wonder, and that bit of ceremony every morning was a checkpoint of sorts. In a sad way, the American flag and the gentleman pulling it up with profound grace and the school bus arriving to our apartment complex all told me that everything was going to be okay. There was a whole world out there waiting for me to explore it. Far beyond the confines of that shitty little apartment with all its misery, 
full of some kind of goodness I had to assume was there in the outside world. More than anything, that expectation of structure became a weird catalyst for my interest in American government. I loved reading about our history. Not always a complete or honest history at that reading level, mind you, but I loved reading about it. And I loved reading about the political leaders who had shaped our path as a nation for better or worse. I learned about civics early on. I devoured books in my school library about elections and Congress and presidents and found quite quickly that every question answered led to 10 more questions in my growing noggin. And like any committed young political dork, it became easier over time to see patterns in our government, not just the rhythms of electoral changeover, but knowing bits of information about our government that were available to all, but read by few. Having lived in our nation's capital now for the past 15 years or so, with tens of thousands of other equally dorky people my age obsessed with government and politics and history, I have noticed over time in all of us what can only be described as the slow and incredibly painful devolution of the faith we once held in our institutions. I'm not talking about run-of-mill corruption and nonsense. It wasn't as though any of us who had read a few serious presidential biographies had arrived in DC expecting a glittering presentation of democratic virtues and elected officials dedicated to preserving them. The old, day, the old adage about laws and sausages was easy enough to respect as a warning. And up to that point, there had certainly been brutal chapters in our history, slavery, civil war, suffrage, internment of Japanese Americans, Jim Crow, etc that stripped away much of the unnecessary varnish. No, I'm talking about the shock of watching our nation increasingly fail to maintain even the already low standards of institutional trust, the collapse of those predictable rhythms and the machinations of political power, the invariably problematic of broadly expected outcomes of a system that was broken to be sure, but very far from shattered. For nearly five decades, Gallup has surveyed public confidence in our institutions, and just over the past 20 years, 2002 being the starting point, I turned 16 that fall, trust has eroded dramatically across the board, as reflected in the combined total of, quote, great deal, quite a lot responses from everyday Americans. Let's look at a few of these. Organized religion has gone from 45% confidence to 31% confidence. Trust in the Supreme Court has been cleanly halved from 50% in 2002 to just 25% this year. Congress has taken a particularly dismal trend, 29% to a mere 7%. Yes, you heard that right, 7% confidence in Congress in 2022. Television news has dropped from 35% to 11%, and newspapers have slid 35% to 16%. The presidency as an institution went from a high of 58% to this year's 23%, its lowest mark in the history of the annual poll, going back consistently to 1991. To be fair, that 58% was in the aftermath of 9-11. So perhaps the previous year's 48% in 2001 
is more accurate. But still, that's more than half loss. More than half. Even the military, the country's most trusted federal institution, is at its lowest level of trust in more than 20 years. Gallup has asked another question semi-frequently since 1979. Quote, in general, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are going in the United States at this time? They've asked us almost every year. If you scan through the timeline of reported surveys over that period, it's easy to notice where the low numbers in American satisfaction coincided with less than great moments in our recent history. Here are some examples. So for example, during the latter part of President Jimmy Carter's administration, when you had the oil crisis and the detainment of American hostages uh, by the Iranian government from 1979 to 1981, the American confidence was about 12%, then 19%, and then 17%. So those are very low numbers, right? Another example, the summer of 1992, when uh, recession hit the American economy, American confidence was about 14%. That's partly what led to George H.W. Bush's loss uh, that November to Bill Clinton in, in the election. Here's a really bad one. Uh, at the height of the Great Recession in 2008, there was a stark 7% confidence among the American people. Most recently, there was 13% confidence in the summer of 2020 as the nation grappled with COVID lockdowns and massive protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder by law enforcement. And of course, Trump's steadfast incompetence in the face of all of that. The latest figure that, I mean, the most recent figure that's been taken was last month, 13% confidence surveyed over the first three weeks of this past June. So that's just last month down from 36% a little over a year ago. So from 36 to 13% confidence in a year, right as President Biden was implementing the final withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. It's important to note that this latest survey was completed just four days before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So the next iteration of these figures will certainly be a fascinating gut punch. Now, these numbers, these numbers give us a snapshot of context for this era, but they're wholly unnecessary to fill that pervasive sense of uneasiness throughout American society. It's not that times are just bad. It's that it feels as though there's an increasing chance things may not get better if something doesn't change quickly. Ardent students of American politics have always been able to point to the pendulum theory as a crude way of illustrating where government has come from and where it's going. Basically, if you wait long enough, the balance of power will shift from left of center to right of center and back and forth over time. Now, the pendulum may stall or take its sweet time, but it always comes back. It also suggests that Americans in free and fair elections will usually split party control between the White House and Congress. For example, even though Pres Presidents Reagan and Bush 41 crushed their Democratic opponents in three consecutive presidential elections during the 1980s, Democratic House Speaker Tip O'Neill held an iron grip on his chamber during their tenures. The 90s saw the inverse of that 
President Clinton became the first Democratic president proper, properly reelected since FDR. That means two consecutive top of ticket victories. Well, the GOP took over the House for the first time in 40 years and held it all throughout the 90s. Here's another one. And this is probably one that many of you have already heard. The party of a first-term president almost always loses seats in the House during midterms. The sole recent exception was President Bush in 2002, whose party gained eight more seats in the House on the strength of his post-9-11 approval rating. There are countless examples of these patterns, and in a strange way, they can be somewhat comforting in especially dark times. The Bush administration, as horrific and brutal as it was, still carried the implication of a pendulum swinging back at some point. And swing back it did. Democrats regained Congress in 2006 and the White House in 2008. After the shock of 2016, though, the pendulum prevailed again. Trump's party lost Congress in 2018 in what was recognized as both a backlash against his terrible policies and as part of the long pattern of the president's party negotiating the public's desire for split power. Here's the thing, though. For the first time in my life, I'm at the point where I must fully question whether the pendulum exists anymore. And it really scares me. That will be discussed in part two on Friday.